You know, a story without conflict or mess is a boring story. I don't know if you've ever really considered that. No one really wants to hear a story about how nothing went wrong, everything was perfect, and everyone lived happily all the time. I mean, we are at peace with the happily ever after, but they shouldn't get to be happy all the time. Right? That's not fair. And we don't like people who tell those kinds of stories because the people who tell stories about how great their life is sound to me like they are snobby and pretentious. And furthermore, depending on the subject, it may be difficult for us to relate to the story that someone is telling if there is no mess or conflict. I went to a uh, youth ministry conference one time several, several years ago, and I was so looking forward to uh, going to a class that was taught by this, this one really influential preacher at the time. And his class was packed. There were people everywhere. And, and he was such a cool guy, and he was so funny. But he told the story about how his church started. And this is not a, a quote, you know, word for word, because this was like 18 years ago. So just, but, but he said something like this. Uh, we decided to start a church, my wife and I, and so uh, we got a place to have it, and we didn't really uh, advertise or anything, and, you know, the first Sunday, 2,500 people showed up. And I heard him say that, and then I reflected on it later, and like I said, they didn't advertise, and in fact, the way he told it, it almost sounded like they kept their opening a secret. <laughs> And I couldn't relate to that story at all. There was nothing in it for me. And in fact, it made me feel bad about myself, hearing him talk about how successful their church was without even trying. And I asked myself the question, just, you know, I talk to myself pretty often. I asked myself the question, why did this happen to him but it hasn't happened to me or to any church I have ever been a part of or visited. And I decided in the end that uh, it was a stupid story and I didn't care about his dumb church anyway. <laughs> but if you dig deeper into that kind of story, the real problem I had with it was not his success, uh, but his lack of struggle. And certainly, there had to be struggle in there. There had to be difficult decisions that were made. There had to be messes that had to be cleaned up or worked through. But it was hard when the story goes from good to great to amazing. You know, because I had not had an experience in my life that followed that same progression. And so I wanted to be encouraged by it, but I wasn't because to me that story did not represent real life. Stories without conflict are mess, are boring. And we can't relate to them very well because our lives are full of conflict and mess. It is somewhat ironic then to think about 
at times what I have expected from the Bible narrative. There is an expectation that might be unstated that God will make the way for his people level and straight and that those who follow God will see that he is God and live a life worthy of the calling to be his people. How many times have you read a Bible story and said to yourself, why did those people do that? Don't they know who Jesus is? Why did they, why did they do this? Don't they know that God is leading them and blessing them? And it's easy to make those, draw those conclusions. The harder ones are, why did God make that happen? Or why did God let that happen? Or how is this possibly the way that God wanted things to go? Now, the story of the Bible, the story of God and his people, challenges our sense of narrative. I'm not sure where we got this idea that we would always understand everything God does and that those that follow God would always have would always follow him without failing and be on this level and straight path. I think a part of it might be that we simply like stories that are not as messy when it comes to Scripture. Um, the, the stories that we can hold up as examples of goodness or faithfulness without very much failure. You know, we like... Well, we don't like the story of, of Noah necessarily because it's a difficult story, but we hold up Noah as the one faithful person on the earth, and we skip over things like him getting drunk in his tent. You know? We hold up Abraham as the example of faithfulness in the Bible, and we ignore the times that he lied to protect himself and even gave up his own wife to save his skin. Furthermore, we like, all, uh, we like God's role in all of these things to make very clear sense and to move logically and fluidly from one point to the next. God should move and work in these ways because we say God is good, God is loving. But the problem is, friends, that when we say that, it is our definition of what good and loving means in whatever circumstances. And therefore, when God doesn't do something in the way that we think he should because he is good and loves us, what's the first thing we question? Not ourselves, right? We question him. And I don't know how many conversations I've had with people who say, if God is good, then why? If God is loving, then how? So we can struggle with the biblical narrative when it gets messy, when the heroes that we have don't act like they should, or God does something unexpected, something that we do not fully comprehend or that we cannot reconcile to our understanding of how the story should go. And the story that we looked at last week with Abraham and Isaac is a pretty perfect example of that. The one thing, as we go through that story, the person that we identify the most with the most is probably Abraham or, or, or you know, Sarah or his family, 
like those people, like we, we can see from their point of view. The person we don't understand is God. But here's the thing that we miss when we read that story. Was God ever going to make Abraham sacrifice Isaac? No. So God was in control of it the whole time. Did God ask him to do this terrible thing? Yes. And as we talked about last week, it was so that God would know that Abraham was on his side. But God knew the whole time it wasn't going to end like that. God knew the whole time that Isaac was not going to be sacrificed. Sometimes we choose to ignore these episodes either because we're embarrassed by the behavior of the followers of God or explaining what God is doing is just too difficult for us. As if God needs us to explain or to comprehend what he's doing at all times. And sometimes... We struggle because we, we don't know how to keep these imbalances from, from messing up the sometimes fragile structure we are building of what God and his people look like. And we forget sometimes that the stories we have in the Bible are stories about real people. And because they involve real people, they are going to be messy So the story that we are studying does not fit the ideal of, of, of the narrative that we would like to see. It, it really, really does not. But it does tell a story about real people with real problems and their real God. And it tells a story of God's efforts to build a real relationship with people who are very, very imperfect. Jacob is not the hero we would like for him to be. And it's really easy to try to overlook certain things in Jacob's life because they are so uncomfortable to deal with. God doesn't do things in this story like we would expect him to. And it starts from the very beginning. This story is not the story we probably we would have written. It doesn't make all the points that we want Bible stories to make about God and his people. But the irony, of course, is that God, we know, works through and uses messy people and messy lives to do God things. And this, my friend, is good news. It is good news that God does not write stories that we would write. It's good news that God works and acts as he does. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians really quickly. Chapter 1, verses 26 through 29. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards, not many were influential, not many were of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. 
I mean, Paul spells it out for us about as clearly as you can. Number one, we are imperfect and we are messy. We've come a long way through Jesus, but there's still a long way for us to go. But number two, God doesn't do things our way. In fact, he takes the things that we would say are foolish or irredeemable or even unforgivable. And God turns those things around to shame those who think they know better than he does. He chose the lowly things of this world, the despised things, so that no one may boast before him. So the one thing we have to remember is that as chaotic as this story may be, it is God's story. It's God's story. And he is working something out in this as messy as it may be. So it's important for us to note that right off the bat, God is was creating the environment that Jacob was born into. If you have your Bibles, open up to Genesis chapter 25, which is where we will be this morning. Isaac was the special child of promise, the only son to Abraham and Sarah. Therefore, he was the official start of Abraham's descendants becoming a nation. And we know, before the story even starts, that God was going to fulfill his promises through Isaac and his offspring. God had made that terribly clear in the story of Abraham and Sarah. Now, Rebecca was especially chosen for Isaac. She came from a good family and was picked out by God. By all accounts, she was a good woman. Isaac was 40 when they got married, and the expectation had to be that they would immediately start a family. After all, they had to do their part in creating a nation. So how many kids would they have? 30? <laughs> like, we got we to gotta get this moving, right? Yet, in spite of all of this, Rebecca remained childless. And it got to be so discouraging to them that Isaac felt like he had to intervene personally on their behalf. So in verse 21, Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife Rebecca became pregnant. Now, it's a little weird, isn't it? Can we just... It's a little weird, based on our expectation, that God would immediately bless them, but instead, uh, um, Rebecca, the, the Bible says she was barren, that she was unable to have children. And it's not until Isaac prays into the situation that, that she became pregnant. And why is this significant to the story? Well, I think it's especially significant to this story because as with Abraham and Sarah, the children that were to come from this marriage of Isaac and Rebekah were not merely a product of biology, you see. 
This was a family of promise. Therefore, the creation of the family, the heirs that were to come, could only happen through the power of God. God had to make it happen. But God doesn't make it happen until they ask him to make it happen. Other families may have been free to invent and govern their future, but that was not so with this family. This family's future was squarely in the hands of God. He would be the one to raise them up and turn them into a nation. Rebecca's barrenness, therefore, was a reminder to them of who was really driving this process. They could not make things happen on their own. They had to trust in God. And so Isaac and Rebecca did what they should have done in these circumstances. They prayed to God, and they cast themselves on him. God, this is not happening under our own effort. Would you please intervene and give us a child? And it was God who answered the prayer and ensured that Rebekah conceived. So when we look at Jacob and Esau, the twins that she will have, they were not merely born as any other child were born. Instead, they were called into existence by God himself. Not saying that, you know, they didn't make a baby the traditional way, but God is present in the whole happening. And they lived because that prayer was prayed and God's promise was kept. Their destiny was shaped by the one who gave them life, not their father or mother, but by God. Now, we can live with that, even though we don't necessarily like everything that had to happen beforehand and how Rebecca had to go through the whole trial of being barren. It's sort of messy, but not overly so. So it seems okay. But all of that changes in the next verses. Verses 22 and 23. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. Now, Whatever you might think about how Jacob's story unfolds and everything that happens, we have to recognize that, again, it's God who designated his course. We would have expected that a child of promise would have been removed and protected from this kind of conflict, that the way in front of him would be straight and smooth, but instead, this blessed child, who we learn will be the second child, will not be shielded from conflict. In fact, there is conflict in the womb. So much so that Rebecca, who has gone from barren to now being pregnant with twins, is so uncomfortable because the babies are fighting in the womb. And she cries out to God, and what does she say? Why is this happening to me? What on earth have I done to deserve this on top of everything else? God did not explain to her why he was doing this or why this was going to happen. He simply told her what was coming. 
And here's something kind of strange, right? We know that the nation of God's people is coming through this line, and yet God gives her twins, and they're not one nation, they're two. So maybe you're thinking the same question I'm thinking, which is, um, why? Like, doesn't that, doesn't that seem like a, a little strange, like a, a weird move for a God who is going to create his people through this family? But as we saw with Abraham being challenged to sacrifice Isaac, God announced in this moment that he was going to do what he needed to do. And so he introduces these babies by saying, if you think this is trouble, just wait. Just wait. You're going to wish that they were hidden away somewhere at some point. God will make decisions that move and shape the lives of those who follow him. He will do unexpected things. And the hardest part is he doesn't have to explain to us why. How we often struggle to answer the why. And we often struggle and when we can't come up with a good why, we make up the why. Looking for these immediate answers to why a conflict exists or what God is going to do through it. But something you are going to see in this story is there is not always an immediate answer to the why. Sometimes it may take a lifetime to understand one moment of what God sees completely. So God was doing a lot more than simply making things difficult for one family. What he was doing was he was challenging the systems that governed the world, the way the world was organized. How was he doing that? Well, the world at that point had a very distinct system in place, and it was a patriarchal system. So the father is, is over everything, and when the father dies, all of his wealth and status as the head of the family was passed down to his oldest son. It's, a, it's an old principle, and it asserts that the oldest should be the first in favor, the oldest male should be the first in favor of all children. And so the oldest male was believed to have these natural rights by, you know, the only, uh, just because he was born first before someone else. From this practice, a whole structure of societal relationships were derived. In many of these societies, these rules were considered to be ordained by God and applicable to all without exception. The first son was the one who was blessed and who received the great portion of the family's inheritance. And it was a way to maintain order, establish social privilege, and create some sense of justice when it came to the end of the patriarch's life. So there wouldn't be arguments about who the next patriarch was going to be. It was all settled by birth order. Esau was the older son. Despite the jostling in the womb and the effort by Jacob to get out first, Esau was the firstborn. Therefore, Esau was the one who by all accounts, should have inherited his father's estate. And Jacob would get something 
but Esau would get the bulk of it. Therefore, God's decision for the younger to be over the older is kind of scandalous. It was a decision that threatened the way the world operated and understood things. Now, we need to note something. God doesn't say, I'm choosing Jacob because Esau is not a very good person. He, he gives no explanation for it. None. He did not say that Esau was undeserving, as though Jacob would earn this right and Esau would not. But at the same time, God had stated that just because Esau was born first, it did not mean that he should be privileged while his brother was not. And just like that, God undermined the way of the world. In Jacob and Esau, God created an inversion, a turning on its head of what should or should not be. It says that God is free to work his will in the face of every human convention and every definition of what is right. And if you don't appreciate how God turns things upside down like that, you should. You should. Because as imperfect as we are, as messy as our lives are, God still works through us. And the Bible is full of this inversion. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. It, it's full of those kinds of things, because God is constantly turning on its head what we think should happen and doing something better through it. So maybe the whole, thing, the whole fact that God is setting this up should cause us to look at Jacob a little bit differently than we would have before as we go through this story. Let's pick it up in verses 24 through 26. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. So, what do we know right from the beginning? Because God has already said it, and we see it in the birth story, which birth, you know, giving birth is awful enough as it is. Well, Rebecca, again, has this weird experience. But we know already the narrative backs it up that Jacob was going to be a child of conflict, restless, and always grasping, and in some ways, exploiting. Jacob came out of the womb <laughs> holding on to the foot of his brother. Now listen, I'm a triplet, okay? So I had to share womb space with two other people, and they tried to kill me while I was in the womb. Um, and but I made it, you know. But I don't know if I ever told you this story, but I was shoved way up in the corner. I was the last one out. And the cord was wrapped around my neck. So when I came out, I was blue. Because uh, my sisters tried to kill me. I am convinced they reached up and... Whew. So when I came out, I was blue. And um, the doctors, you know, got me all worked out. And then I turned yellow because I had jaundice. I, see, I was special from birth. That's, that's what you need to get this. But my parents asked the doctors, is there going to, like, is there going to be any damage from from him coming out and, not, and being deprived of oxygen. And they said, uh, maybe you'll know when he's about five. 
so if you're wondering about some of my mental deficiencies, it's because my sisters deprived me of oxygen when I was a baby. Um, so he comes out and, and he's, he's grasping the heel. And in fact, he's named Jacob because of that. Jacob means heel, the one who kicks his way out or supplanter. Another way to interpret it, that name alone, would be uh, he who grasps the heel, which is a Hebrew idiom for one who deceives. He is named the grasper, the one who deceives. Now, we don't, we're not, I should say, we're not going to particularly like this about Jacob. Jacob does some things in his story that are not above board. And in fact, things are done to him also that are not above board. We would have preferred that Jacob, uh, you know, would keep his head down and mind his own business and do what he was supposed to do because these are the kind of people we respect. People like his grandfather Abraham, who for the most part kept his head down and followed God. But we, what do we know about Jacob? He will never be satisfied. He is the grasper. He is the one who will always reach for more. So here's our problem with maybe this story. Who do we know made Jacob? God. Who formed him and made him the child of promise? God did. Who, who chose him and set the course of conflict that was to come? God did. He declared there are two nations and not just one. God did all of these things. And in fact, it's God's call that put Jacob in the path of these conflicts. And as much as we may not like what Jacob does, the way that he handled things or does business, there is something about his character that is God-formed. So we're going to have to wrestle with that a little bit as we go through. And if all this were not enough, Isaac and Rebekah decide to take sides. They each have a favorite child. From verses 27 and 28. The boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. In birth, in name selection, in vocation, in how they look, even parental preference, in all of these things, these two brothers were set against one another. Jacob will have a life of conflict, and there's no way to get around it. So as much as we might want the story to be a different one, this is the story that we have. This is the path that God himself laid out for this family. And in many ways, it is the most realistic story because this is how life is, friends. It's like this. It's messy, and God's plan for this world runs up against our interests, our actions, and our motivations all the time. Because, as we've already stated, we don't just find ourselves in conflict with one another, we find ourselves in conflict sometimes with God himself and with the choices that he is making. The Bible story, though, is not one of a perfect marriage between God and the people that he lovingly created. And what is amazing about the story is not how God makes everything right because he doesn't make everything right. 
That's not the amazing part of the story. The amazing part of the story is how God continues to shape and mold his people despite the struggle and the mess. The story of Jacob is an affirmation that God continues to work and move to shape the story of his creation and that sometimes the road is difficult. It is anything but flat and straight. There's a bunch of hills. In some places, the road may not even be clear in front of you, but God is the one who is still riding it. And just because the road is not straight or flat, it doesn't mean that he's not there. Wouldn't we rather God be a God of the hills and the valleys than the God of the straight path? 1 Corinthians chapter 25 again says this in verse 18 and 22 through 24. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. We have much to be grateful for in knowing that God can work and move through people like Jacob. That God can work and move through situations that are full of conflict, full of difficulty. That God can still make happen what he wants to happen. And we have to be so grateful that God chose such an unorthodox way to love and save us. For we have to understand that God did what no God worshipped or written about. God did what no other God would do. Not only by putting up with all of our shenanigans, but by sending his son here, sacrificing him, that we might have life. Praise God. Praise God that he works in the way that he does. Aren't we glad that things don't go the way we think they should? Aren't we glad that God in his wisdom does as he desires to do? And aren't we glad, church, that he broke from the script and did ultimately the unthinkable, that he would send his son to be a sacrifice for us? Aren't we glad and thankful that God is always writing the story? Amen?